and welcome to the Rising Edge DNO podcast. I am Richard Kutcher and we are now very much into our third season after we launched a bit of a teaser episode in September with DNO legend Kevin LaCroix. Actually, our most listened to episode to date. So if you did miss that at the time, it's definitely worth scrolling back through our archive. Just go back to episode 11 and give that a listen. But for now, leading us down the DNO path, as always, is the indomitable Owen Dacey, Head of Claims at Rising Edge. Owen, feeling autumnal, brother? <laughs> yeah. Firstly, what does indomitable mean? I've, I've never been described as... It means like... Uh, I think it means great. It means like undisputed. Yeah, it's a good thing. It's okay, a good great. thing. I, um, well, I did look it up a second ago, <laughs> and I can't remember exactly the definition, but it was positive. Okay, great. <laughs> Love it. Okay. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, definitely feeling autumnal. There's, there's a few leaves falling in the garden. Um, so I've got that kind of annual thing going through my head of when to go and pick up all the leaves. Do I do it now? Do I, do I leave it? In your hands? So do you use a bag or? Well, I, no, let's not go there. I mean, I had a, I had a, a leaf blur thing, it broke. And uh, so it'll be, it'll, be, it'll be manual. It'll be manual. We can do a different podcast about leaf blowers <laughs> and, and the best uh, way to collect the leaves out of your drive uh, this time of year. But from one DNO legend in, in Kevin to another in this episode, yeah. I think it's fair to say in, in our next guest. So uh, we're going to be focusing over the next 30 minutes, Owen, on policy wording. It's a pretty important part, I imagine, of the DNO world. So who do we have joining us over the next 30 minutes? We have got Francis Keane from McGill and Partners. So Francis is a specialist in this topic. He, he's an absolute expert when it comes to wordings. Again, we just wanted to, we, you know, we've talked a lot about the various exposures out there uh, for directors and officers, but the wording really is an extremely important document. And so we wanted to have a discussion about that and see what what we could learn and share that might be of use to our listeners. Yes, and I'm sure there is lots in here. Oh, I know there's lots in here, which I think will be of, of use to our listeners. We've also got UL Brightman, of course, from Rising Edge uh, yes. on the pod again. And I pop up as well with a question. So let's get into the chat between Owen, Francis and UL. So Francis, as a, a director or officer or senior executive of a company, why why is it important to understand um, your company's directors and officers insurance and what it covers and how it operates? It's a really good question. And all too often, directors leave that to the risk manager or someone else in the company. But the point is, what they need to understand is that the company isn't necessarily always going to be there to protect them, A, because it may be bust. Uh, and B, because it may be the one that's suing them. So they have a direct interest in understanding what the cover actually provides because the company may not always have their backs. Mm -hmm. Just following on from that, have you encountered examples where you've come into contact with a director officer and they've literally got no idea what it what it contains or how it works? I mean, that yeah. is the most often the case. Really? That, that, yeah. that is the reality, which is not to say that they're not interested uh, when you have a chance to sit down with them and discuss the cover. But most of them have a very little idea of what cover they have and what it actually means. And most particularly, they don't really know what good looks like because they don't know what questions to ask. 
that leads me very nicely on to my second question I was going to ask, which was um, what makes a DNA wording a good wording? Uh, what makes it a good wording is one that's uh, easy to, to understand uh, because really the concept is not a difficult one. It's basically, I always say, like errors and omissions for managers of companies and all the jargon that gets attached to it and the baggage, side A, side B and side C and the, the complexity doesn't really need to be there in my view so unless they're able to understand the wording by having a sort of leaf through it in about 20 minutes either themselves or with some um, expert advice it's not a good wording Mm -hmm. on the other scale I guess a bad wording therefore is one well, a bad wording is one that is just uh, so. So there's there's a, a school of drafting that 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 sort of a biblical school of drafting that, that where the idea is, and we inherited a client where this recently was the case. There were uh, I think a hundred and twenty pages in this policy and seventy defined terms. It's a bit like the Bible. So if you make it long enough, there's authority for any proposition in it, and that's not a good wording in my view because all that does is encourage complexity and the potential for satellite coverage disputes when you least need them because you can always get lawyers to argue about long and complex terms there is a risk that you go too far the other way Um, you do need a minimum amount of defined terms and clarity but I'm uh, a fan of the the, the 10 page wording rather than the 100 page one I like that I like that approach I guess then because there's always a balance to be struck I guess isn't there because some of that complexity might be well intended by whoever's introducing that but it can become too much so that's actually a really good point because it's not just the insurers who are to blame for 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 the long and complex wordings it often is as you say you know the risk managers or indeed the brokers who say well we want to be sure we've got cover for x y and z as on an affirmative basis you get a long schedule with lots of things ticked and that might be something that certain clients actually feel more comfortable with. The danger with it is that when you go into the detail of those covers and you see that actually they are subject to their own little regimes and sublimits, you get sucked into that world of complexity. Yeah. So you've touched on this a little bit. You've, you, you know, you, you um, have new clients or so you're reviewing a DNO wording for, for a client. What are those key areas, the kind of basics that you're reviewing to make sure it works and meets the needs of that client? Another really good question, Owen. And the, you know, I was saying earlier, in theory, you should be able to look at a wording in 20 minutes and, and work out whether it's good or not. Um, that may or may not be a council of perfection. But I think what you shouldn't do is try and read a wording from cover to cover, because by the time you get to page 15 or 20, you'll have fallen asleep. A better thing to do is to focus on what I always regard as the key gateways into cover for any of these types of policies. So you start with the insuring clause and you look at the definitions in particular of claim, loss and wrongful act because those are, in my view, the most important definitions in any of these types of policies and they can then lead you on an inquiry depending on the nature of the wording into other definitions and sub-definitions but if those key gateways work in the way they should so a claim is is really anything uh, from a from a written demand onwards a wrongful act is any act error or omission and a loss is any form of uh, loss cost or settlement or defense or investigation costs then you're a long way down the road 
just touching on your background, I'm always I'm interested in this because it's um, you bring a different perspective. So your background is you're a lawyer. You were involved in litigation as a lawyer. You bring that perspective when it comes to drafting and contracts and contracts. What for you were those kind of key learnings that you took from disputes that you brought into the world of the world that we love of dra- of drafting and and contracts? It's not possible to draft uh, the perfect policy. That doesn't exist. There are always going to be the potential for coverage disputes. So, for example, uh, around the question of which, in which year do, do the facts of this particular claim sit? Where does it attach? Which claim can be related to it for aggregation purposes? Those issues crop up perennially, and they're always going to be there for the lawyers, so that's great for the lawyers. The point that the draftsman needs to bear in mind is that there is scope for minimising the wriggle room, for want of a better phrase, for, from, from insurers, and the lack of, of clarity around that wriggle room by ensuring that the formulas used for related claims, for attachment, for notification, are ones that are well tried and tested and don't sort of set hairs running unnecessarily. We always try to say that claims may be inevitable, but coverage disputes are not. I mean, as I say, in a perfect world, there wouldn't be any coverage disputes. That's that's not the world in which we live. But there certainly are things that can be done to reduce that scope. That's interesting to hear. I think a similar frustration I have is that I still I think how on earth do we still have coverage disputes when it's such a well-developed class of business, although maybe not as well-developed as maybe Marine, but still it's been a while and uh, probably slightly naive of me to think that maybe because I was hoping you might have a, a clause that solved all the problems with <laughs> aggregation. <laughs> and I, just to know it doesn't exist is kind of, I don't know, maybe it makes me feel better. But um, yeah, like you say, you can limit you can limit the um, the chance for dispute by the well well tested um, language, right? Yeah, I think that's the key yeah. point. Okay, just pulling on your experience again, um, are you able to talk about an example from the past where the dispute arose because of you know a really it went wrong basically because of the drafting? Is there anything you can talk about there or not one specific example? I guess because there <laughs> because there are so many, um, <laughs> okay. but. but I think the key thing is to understand that the courts will always look at the language not on the basis of your own subjective intent when you drafted it, but what the words on the page in the context of the wording as a whole really look like. Yeah, I think that's, again, to me, that's a really important reminder because so often when when the issues crop up um, and the disputes come up, it can be, oh, well, it was obviously supposed to be this or obviously supposed to be that. And every, it's quite easy for people on both sides to lose sight of what you're supposed to just look at the words. Suppose, well, from England and Wales point of view anyway. So, yeah, I think that's a great point. Yeah, I mean, I think in many cases where there are ambiguities, provided there's some goodwill, and I have to say often there is goodwill in the market, the way is found for a sensible solution. But... The problems arise where, dare I say it, the lawyers uh, get hold of something, uh, dig in, and um, you end up with a, you know, a lengthy coverage dispute that you know is ultimately going to have to be resolved one way or another, uh, and isn't really doing anyone any good. That ambi- ambiguity uh, has to be resolved, and it isn't always necessarily 
for the benefit of the insured or the insurer, but some sort of compromise needs to be reached because we're not in a perfect world. Mm-hmm. One thing we're, I, th- I think we're all um, come to the conclusion that disputes are unavoidable and they do occur, unfortunately. So the majority of times I've seen it, this arise, as well as been kind of, it has been just human error. I mean, that's probably, that might be harsh actually, but maybe maybe the human error is just not being able to conceive of every conceivable scenario for what, what type of claim could happen. But what do you think about bringing in the machines to do it for us? Is that is there an opportunity there, do you think, sort of AI? and? Well, I, I, th- <laughs> I think they have a role to play because I think they're getting more and more sophisticated. And I think, again, I'd like to think for a 10-page contract, provided you check the schedule and it's accurate, you shouldn't need AI all that much. Inevitably, there are some contracts, particularly where you have these blended policies, where you're not just talking about DNO. So, in the financial lines, you could be blending together cyber and PI and crime and 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 DNO, and 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 suddenly you do end up with quite a long wording. And there is some scope for for subjecting that to to, to AI scrutiny. Um, not so much with a view to ironing out the sorts of issues we've been discussing around getting the intent right, but certainly in terms of identifying schoolboy errors or, you know, or, or mistakes just around numbers or, or years or language that, as I say, these, these systems are becoming more and more sophisticated, that, that get flagged up and that you then need to look at. But I don't think AI is yet or indeed will ever be in a, in a situation to sort of solve the subjective yeah. intent behind the wordings, which is something which needs to be negotiated and then understood before the attempt is made to, to draft the, uh, the solution. So more of a, an efficiency tool, really, maybe, in the future. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so going back to the clients, this is the products there for, for the insureds. What are they most concerned about at the moment when you're talking to them? Do you think, you know, I'm just, I'm getting at is, you know, does it, do, do we think DNO policies, generally speaking, do they, do they actually provide the solutions that fit with all those needs at the moment, do you think? Well, it's an interesting question, and it's interesting. Uh, the answer varies depending on the time you're asking it. So, if you'd asked me that question two years ago, they'd have said, uh, "We just want some cover because uh, because the market, as you know, at that stage, everyone was uh, running for the hills, and they were finding it quite a challenge to find any cover." In fact, I firmly believe there was a silver lining to that particular cloud because of what it forced boards to do is focus on what was important to them. Instead of saying to the the brokers, just renew as expiring and try and get a cheaper deal, uh, they had to start thinking not just in terms of the individuals, as we said right at the start of this call, what, what am I covered for, but also at a company level, what value am I getting out of this insurance? And that's a really good question to ask, because what it what it drives you towards is deciding before you go to the market what your priorities are. And I think what the, the priorities tend to be, number one, having transparency around the offering so they understand what they're buying and they've minimised the so- scope for coverage disputes. And then number two, it just depends around that. And you as, as underwriters will probably have seen this trend, but we're seeing it more and more, the, the, the focus around is it balance sheet protection with, with DNO or is it really there to protect the individual directors um, when all other options have, have, have gone away? And quite often it's the latter of those two, certainly for the larger companies. So I think transparency and clarity uh, followed by a clear understanding of what their aims are when they're going to the market and, uh, and having those aims met. 
I find that 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 dynamic between what what is the purpose? Do you, do you see? Because I, I see the kind of I've seen the creep, you know, towards corporate legal things like corporate legal liability cover, so entity coverage mm-hmm. in addition to the the shareholder claim coverage, and then lots of other bells and whistles to get added on to. And I, I was wondering if that perhaps that move was basically just a result of an incredibly competitive market, a soft market, and people were trying to find ways to kind of, I don't know, compete really. I don't know. I'd say so, certainly. Yeah. I, I think there's definitely an argument for that. And certainly insurers are, are very good at kind of innovating in that space. The interesting thing is what happens on the, in the event of a claim and, and some of the behavior there around order of payments, around IVI in particular is, is one where I've really seen a lot of consternation from clients from companies just saying, well, we don't want to cover this guy. We don't want the cover to, we paid for this. We don't want this policy to respond. And of course, you're busy setting up kind of Chinese walls internally. um, And you have to explain to them that actually this was purchased by you on behalf of your directors and you've divulged that to your shareholders. So it it can really, some of these coverage areas where they're in the name of innovation, they've been, you know, ostensibly trying to drive uh, additional cover, actually in some cases aren't necessarily in the client's best interest or certainly things that the clients want to trigger in the event of a claim. That, that's a really great point and, and, and it's a point that, that crops up. Uh, I've certainly had that, that exact discussion with, with uh, a number of clients who are saying, what on earth are you doing? Saying that we've got no choice but to give this policy to the people that we, we are suing ourselves because we think they're bad people. So the, there's certainly that dynamic. There's another dynamic similar to that, that one, which is that the limit can be eaten up by cover either to these the, the, these employees who you don't like uh, who who don't who you don't think deserve to eat up any of the cover or indeed by protections there for the company and some clients really like some of those protections to your point about entity costs which can be seen as innovations and and, and great things to have by the risk manager that's buying this this cover on behalf of the company but uh, when push comes to shove, so far as the individual directors are concerned, is it really such a great cover to have? Because all it's doing is eroding uh, an element of your primary limit with your key insurer by paying out to the company that arguably could be looking after itself better than the directors that the policy was designed to protect. Is that a good example as well then, Francis, of where if of needing that input and buy-in from the directors when policies are actually being bought or coverage has been sought because the risk manager might have a much more corporate focus of cover for the entity not maybe thinking so much about individual directors and that's where maybe that communication can can break down or priorities get mixed up it's a, it's another really good question and it's one i don't i don't go so far as to say it's a conflict of interest but i do think there is a tension there between the buyer as you say uh, who's trying to get the maximum bang for their buck from the insurance market, whereas the board, they're frequently surprised when I sit around a board table and say, despite the name of this product, it doesn't just protect the directors and officers. It's not just you 12 guys sitting around, you know, guys and hopefully some women now as well, sitting around this table. It's It could be if a large company, hundreds, even thousands of individuals who are um, potentially covered un- under this product. So um, what certain companies do, which I think is an interesting and, and quite enlightened approach, not that many, is that they take the power to buy this particular policy out of, as compared with all other insurances, away from the risk manager and they leave it with the company secretariat. So the company secretariat reports directly to, to the board 
and uh, they are very much focused on the protection of these individuals as opposed to what's good for the company. So we've touched on there's some tension that can exist between the person buying and the board. Where are the expectation gaps normally that you've seen, Francis? I mean, where, where do they exist where the client is expecting one thing and then when there's a claim they, they see well, something else? Well, I'd make two points about that. First is, is Yo's excellent point about... Um, to, to, to the horror that the company discovers that, that the policy is responding when it shouldn't respond. The other obvious one is where it's not responding where they want it to respond. And the most obvious example of that is the perennial tension between the insurers and the policyholders around what triggers cover in the context of a regulatory investigation. Because it's not claims that tend to be the controversial question. Everyone understands that these policies are designed to protect the directors against claims, but the number of claims in the UK, civil or criminal, against directors are, are really not the major source of threat. The major source of threat are regulatory investigations, and insurers have their own red lines about what sort of investigations they want covered. Policyholders have a different take on that topic uh, because they think at the point at which the individuals need legal representation in the context of investigation, that's the point at which the policy ought to be triggered. Unfortunately, many policies don't provide that degree of clarity. And so that's the point around... So, so an investigation can kick off, for example, with a just a letter to the entity saying, give us, from whichever regulatory body it is, give us some documents. So and then, exactly yeah. right. So the gold standard here is a request for assistance, information, production of documents, interview from a, a regulatory uh, or, or other official body. That's what you want. What often you get is something along the lines of a formal or official uh, investigation in which the insured person is targeted and then you have to go through um, a, a discussion, a coverage discussion with the insurers around the particular facts of that case. Is it a formal or official, whatever that means, request? Is the attendance required? Uh, which documents are we talking about? Uh, my view as a purist, particularly in, in, in a softer, more benign market, is those issues shouldn't really be there. There shouldn't be that friction between the cover at the point at which you need it as an individual and your insurers. Some additional mess around notification in those circumstances as well, because in some cases they're not able to notify because they have to be uh, kept uh, confidential. Yeah, you're, you're right. You're, and that, that, that again, um, you can draft your way around that. You can have a clause in the policy that says specifically that if you're not allowed to tell the insurer they won't take that point against you which is worth having but you're right generally um, and we always tell clients it's in their interests to notify early because the, the, the earlier you notify the more likely it is you will deprive if you take a cynical view the insurers of a get out of jail free card because you are telling them up front before you are incurring those costs. If, uh, looking at it from the insurer's perspective, what they are presented with is a fait accompli because you've already spent a million quid before anyone's thought of telling the insurers, it's not going to be a huge surprise if the insurers say, well, hang on, uh, you really ought to read the policy. You should have told us about this stuff. We may have been prejudiced. It may even be a condition precedent to our liability to cover you that you tell us and you haven't so we're not going to give you your million quid we're only going to give you 10 quid 
Mm-hmm. Just to throw in more complication, get into the weeds, but throw in the dynamic of whether or not when it was triggered, if it, you know, when it was an actual investigation or not, and whether it was the NCFA. Yeah, and that, and that's a really good point as well. So what can happen is you get the policy responding to claims the insured, the policyholder, understands that the investigation costs are not going to be covered because they haven't sought insurer's consent. Then the claim comes in a year later and insurers say, ah, not only are we not going to cover the investigation, because you never told us about that, but we're also going to regard that investigation as a claim because that's what the policy allows us to do. And we're not going to cover the claim going forward because you never told us about any of this stuff. So the lesson is early engagement on all sides. Um, there, bashing yeah. insurers today. Yes. Am I? I, don't, I thought I was being kind to it. I, I thought I was being really kind and insurers, uh, conscious of where I am. Insurers, lawyers, who else? Estate agents. I've, ser- I've certainly bashed in- bashed lawyers, but I think that I'm entitled to do that. Absolutely. Yeah, you've touched on it there, Francis, with the. There's, there's so many forms out there and things like you know the threshold for triggering a cover for an investigation um there are there are so many forms out there and they're all different and i, I remember reading something you wrote they're not even com- directly comparable in any way some of them so obviously if you're well advised maybe not so much but does that create a problem for clients and without suggesting we do any competitive anti-competitive behavior whatsoever is there an argument for kind of more homogenization of wordings across the market. I don't know how you do it practically, but... There's al- there's already a massive homogenization okay. of product, and that's been done for various reasons. Part of it for ease of use for brokers, also because, you know, well-trodden paths. You mentioned yourself, Francis, that you want there to be um, case law, you want there to be for clauses to have been proven and, and worked and tried and tested, and I think that, that finds its way into policies. There's a massive homogenization. But there's still room, I think, there for innovation. And, you know, we mentioned some of the bells and whistles that have been used over the time, and certainly some of the work that France has done in the past with some forms which have been, I think, really innovative in trying to streamline the forms mm-hmm. and take away some of the kind of name peril approach, which I think is really beneficial. Um, but in most cases, a massive homogeneity. Uh, and it's for good reason, I think, the tried and tested approach, confidence and a lack of ambiguity Uh, I think are really important. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because the experts, brokers, lawyers, whatever, and and insurers actually, uh, and indeed risk managers, they they all want to add value in the process. They all want to say, well, you know, these ideas are are, are the ideas we, we... And actually, when I used to do this work, I used to do a lot of coverage work or a lot of policy wording advice to insurers when I was a lawyer. And I must have advised lots of different carriers. And... I was always able to say to myself and to my partners, there wasn't any conflict in doing this because none of the carriers came to me and said, can you draft what you think is the perfect policy? Because having done that once, it'd be quite difficult to, 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 to trot out the same product to, to, to another carrier. What instead happened was that the carriers would come to me and say, well, this is what we want you to do. And so my, my job was like a, a word smith, basically, creating what I understood their intention to be, and all their intentions are, are different because they've got their own um, they've got their own shop window in terms of what they think are the best things. And if I'm also honest, um, that they've got their things that they they're not so keen to cover. So I don't think you're going to get complete homogeneity. And I think that's I mean, it certainly keeps me in a job. But I think it's probably inevitable. Although interestingly, with errors and omissions, there's much less scope for that. Uh, moving on to trying to take some learnings perhaps from another de- a debacle we've seen obviously the insurance industry during covid with 
property so policies and BI interruption claims. I'm not sure there is something within that that we don't know about yet with DNA policies. But it, you know, do you think there's a there's a there's a ticking time bomb for DNA? There's something in there that you think you could see some sort of systemic coverage issue in, in some event that we can't foresee yet. <laughs> well, it, 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 may, it may sound selfish of me to yeah. say, but I, I don't really care. And the reason I don't care is because I think fundamentally this should be an all risks cover. I think the whole point about it is that it shouldn't matter from the perspective of the end users, the directors, what the claim, what the 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 originating cause yeah, of the yeah. cause of the claim is, it doesn't matter whether it's something that's known, unknown, or or or, or, mm-hmm. or out there in the future. Mm-hmm. If it results in a liability suit, and provided that there's nothing in the presentation of the risk to insurers that they haven't told the insurers about, it ought to be covered. So okay. I think, you know, separately, I mean, the, from the insurer's perspective, there are issues around silent cyber and all of those mm-hmm. sorts of yeah, issues. Sure. But I don't, from the from the from the buyer's perspective, I don't think that's uh, that's an issue that that that, that I yeah, need yeah. worry about. Yeah. No, it's not. It's not a concern for the for the client or even necessarily the broker. From the insurer side, there are a few clauses which I think have given some sleepless nights for the last couple of decades, and it hasn't happened yet. But some of the blank check clauses, which don't require a trigger, so mitigation costs, crisis management, where you could imagine every single one of your clients having a covered loss in the policy period in certain kind of macroeconomic environments. It hasn't happened before, um, and they're sublimited in most cases, so it, it, it may not be the complete catastrophe apocalypse that you imagine, but certainly there are some which could create systemic loss. Just a couple more questions, and more more personal questions, really. Um, so we, we, we asked you to um, come on today, Francis, because we knew you were um, an experienced uh, <laughs> wordsmith with with incredible expertise in this area. So I se- I sense you might enjoy it. But can you, do, do you, what do you enjoy about wordings? Is what I'm trying to get to. Like, do you enjoy it? What do you, why do you enjoy it? Do I enjoy it? Um, I I do enjoy it in the sense of uh, if the if if a client comes to me and they've got a particular issue around a wording or they want to 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 craft something then it's a challenge and i like i like rising to that challenge what i what i like less if i'm if i'm honest is as we were discussing earlier um plowing through a wording that that we inherit where you have maybe 50 60 70 endorsements and you have to work out forensically what on earth the coverage is uh, and you kind of have to scratch your head and say well how did the client ever get into this situation and that is whether ai can help with that problem that would be that, that would be that would make my life tremendously easier because it's it, it i'd much rather start with a blank sheet of paper than with 300 sheets of paper trying to work out with, with a client saying to me we don't want to give up any cover here uh because it's the most enormous task to work out what what, what the cover might be in the first place that they think they have renewals a month i've had this exact i was going to ask you that was you sort of answered it but i was going to say would you prefer to just start with a blank page mm-hmm. but then you've just you know, the point you make is obviously you've got someone that doesn't want any they want continuous cover right as well so we're going to end with basically three non-negotiables which is the three things you would never allow into a wording or should never be there from your perspective um i don't think i can come up with three i i've a personal big dislike of all the sort of ridiculous legalese like heretofore and whereas I've, i really don't like those 
Other than that, I don't think I have any because I think my main point is I think it was Confucius who said better a flawed diamond than than a pebble without. And I think, you know, there's too much too much danger of trying to make the perfect the enemy of the good that you have to settle for for something that's kind of good enough and you know provided there are no no howlers in there i mean i've even seen situations where the client has understood that there are ambiguities in the wording because we've pointed those ambiguities out and they have still said they'd rather have those ambiguities and have the ability to argue uh, the facts on a particular claim than to try and uh, iron them out in, in, in all their enormous detail because it may result in them ending up with less cover. So I'm, I'm not um, fetishistically attached to this idea of, of clarity. I recognise that there are, there, are, there are boundaries. Well, I've learned a lot during this conversation. Thank you very much, Francis, for joining us. It's been a pleasure. So, Owen, I thought that was a a really interesting chat between yourself, Yoel, and Francis, and he had some brilliant insight and perspective, and he was very generous with his knowledge to share. What were kind of a couple of key takeaways for you? So my key takeaways um, today, first one was we should really be striving for simplicity and brevity. Of course, as as Francis said, there's a minimum amount of defined terms and clarity that you need in there, but that that was a real takeaway with me when we're looking at drafting and just looking at wordings in general, that, that's what we should be striving for. Second takeaway was just as a, this was more of a kind of tip for the end user, really, if you're interested in looking at your own, the, the wording that might apply to you, and you're trying to work, figure out is this good or bad. I mean, focusing, as Francis said, on those key gateways to cover, the insuring clause is an obvious point, and those key definitions, claim, loss, uh, wrongful act. Thirdly, enlightening moment for me, probably a bit naive but it's just not possible or maybe i don't know maybe it is but not possible to draft the perfect policy so i mean but it's not actually possible to draft a policy that means we will never have a coverage dispute ever again unfortunately but the takeaway learning point for me there really was yes you can't do that but you can control kind of the control the, the things kind of within your control around the key areas where disputes can occur by using tried and tested language so i think that happens a lot already but again a good takeaway there and then finally just it's more of a kind of less of a technical point i guess but the sense really from speaking to francis and we've been thinking about this at rising edge a bit is just perhaps there is a bit of a disconnect in some spots between the end user and the product. So the end user being an individual, yeah, you know, that entity insured person dynamic. And so it's kind of encouraged me in a way that that endeavor of finding ways to, to fix that and reconnect the end user with, with the product is, is a, is a worthy one. So yeah, we'll be looking to do that. I mean, yeah, those, those were mine. I don't know if you had any as well. I just thought it was really a fascinating insight. I've, I've actually uh, done a little bit of work with Francis through Airmic in the past, and he's just a very clear communicator, I think, on the topic. Yeah. He's obviously an expert in his field and a, and a practical expert, but he's, he's very good at explaining these issues. I'm obviously not a DNO expert. I learn something every time we record these episodes, and I just thought Francis made it all sound if not simple, uh, he made it sound quite clear of what he's trying to achieve and what he thinks yeah. the industry is trying to achieve with, with policies. 
Yeah, completely agree, Richard. So we're going to end it there, Owen. Uh, we, uh, we'll be back in two weeks' time with our next episode, all about crime. And uh, we've got Tom Philby, partner for Mills and Reeve, joining us, hasn't, haven't we, Owen? We do. Yeah, another another expert in his field and incredible insights into that world of, of uh, employee fraud, external fraud, real-life examples, risk mitigation, recovery um, tips. So, yeah, a really good one. Fantastic. Well, we'll see you in two weeks. Take care. See you next time.